Catherine Bigelow's film, Zero Dark Thirty, has been nominated for five Oscars at next Sunday's Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Actress for Jessica Chastain, Best Original Screenplay, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound Editing. The film has not been nominated for Best Director. Now, the background of that detail's significance is that three years ago, some of you may recall, Bigelow's previous film, Hurt Locker, was nominated for nine Oscars and won six of them, including Best Picture and Best Director, making Catherine Bigelow the first woman in the entire 82-year history of the Academy Awards to win the Oscar for Best Director. So given that history, the absence of even a Best Director nod for Zero Dark Thirty speaks volumes. It may be an honor just to be nominated, but it is not an honor to be snubbed. However, Bigelow's film was not overlooked at the box office. As of yesterday, the film had made more than $85 million, doubling its production budget of $40 million. So despite any criticism, at least economically, I doubt that Bigelow, Sony Pictures, or anyone else financially involved in the film has any regrets. How about um, everyone here this morning? Who has seen Zero Dark Thirty? Okay, some of you. Uh, if you have a significantly different perspective on the film than the one I'll explore this morning, I'd enjoy talking to you at, at some point. But speaking for myself, I'll confess that you could add my name to that uh, chorus of viewers who found themselves enraptured by the film for almost three hours, despite some highly disturbing moments with some scenes. One of the reasons I wanted to preach about this movie is that I, I love film, and I try to build a sermon around a film from time to time. I decided to preach about this film in particular because its depictions of torture uh, have created so much controversy. I don't have that much investment in who wins the Oscars. I don't want to get distracted in that particular uh, problem, but I, I do uh, care about what gets caught up in our cultural zeitgeist and the ways that affects how we perceive things like torture. And the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, New York Magazine, the LA Times, the Colbert Report, uh, the Daily Show, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, these are some of the many different media outlets that have invested you know, heavy headlines multiple times exploring the ethics of Zero Dark Thirty. And although the film has many defenders, uh, Democratic senators Dianne Feinstein and Carl Levin reached across the aisle to uh, Republican Senator John McCain, who of course himself was tortured in Vietnam, uh, to add their voices to those who experienced, quote, a deep disappointment in Bigelow's film. At issue for many people in this camp is that the film begins with the claim that it is based on first-hand accounts of actual events. And the narrative of Zero Dark Thirty leads many, if not most, viewers to think that torture led to a critical piece of evidence uh, being revealed that was a major turning point in finding the location of Osama bin Laden. In contrast to this view, on April 30th, 2012, eight months before Zero Dark Thirty was released, and of course, that was to the general public, and Zero Dark Thirty is claiming to be based on insider information that they gained long before that, the chairs of the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, Carl Levin and Dianne Feinstein again, they released a statement specifically intended to contradict the claims that were being made in the media. Uh, about the necessity and effectiveness in tor of torture in the CIA's ongoing counterterrorism work. 
Based on an extensive three-year study, the senators concluded that the CIA did not first learn about the existence of bin Laden's courier from detainees subjected to, quote, coercive interrogation techniques. Instead, the CIA learned about the existence of the courier, his true name and location, through means unrelated to the CIA detention and interrogation program. Also, in contrast to Zero Dark Thirty's highly entertaining emphasis on one lone female operative as the prime mover behind finding bin Laden, the Senate report says that information to support this operation was obtained from a wide variety of intelligence sources and methods. Further supporting the case against the past, present, and future use of torture, the report continues that the three detainees subjected to waterboarding provided no new information about the courier. In fact, the CIA detainees who were, subject, who were subjected to coercive techniques downplayed the courier's significance, with some of those detainees denying that they knew him at all in the face of significant evidence to the contrary. Detainees whom the CIA believed to have information of um, bin Laden's location provided no locational information, even after significant use of coercive interrogation techniques. So on one hand, of course Bigelow has the First Amendment freedom to make whatever film she wants to make. On the other hand, critics have the freedom to evaluate the film as they see fit. Speaking for myself, as I waded through the many different perspectives on this film, my current opinion is that while I generally uh, celebrate films not spoon-feeding the audience, I do think, at the risk of understatement, that Bigelow's film could have benefited from far greater nuance regarding the ethics and effectiveness in the use of torture on terrorist suspects. But let me take a step back at this point to say that what interests me about this film and why I wanted to preach about it this morning is at least as much everyone's reaction to the film as the film itself. Jungian psychology invites us to consider that hyperbolic reactions, reactions that are far more exaggerated than would be expected or typically warranted for a given scenario, are often indications that one's shadow side has been triggered that we've touched on something that we've been repressing, like the emperor doesn't seem to have on clothes. In the case of Zero Dark Thirty, the argument could be made, of course, that it's just a film, but the slew of hyperbolic controversy and headlines are perhaps an indication that this film touched on our societal shadow around all the misinformation and all the hidden information that has been going on for years now about the war on terror. And all the excitement is partially because this argument really matters. Earlier during the story for all ages, as I said, we heard about the emperor who had no clothes. This classic children's tale is about that cognitive dissonance of being asked to believe that what you're seeing with your own eyes, a naked man or a man with underwear on for the, the G-rated children's version, uh, is not true, that he does in fact have no clothes. A psychological term for this phenomenon is disavowal, denying what you clearly know to be true. And when we disavow things, it ends up coming back in some really weird and twisted ways in our psyche. But sometimes the moment comes when, for better or worse, you can't repress 
deny or disavow the truth any longer. We were um, talking about disavowal and worship associates earlier this week, and one example came up was people that disavow where their food comes from uh, so that they can eat a hamburger as long as they don't think about the cow, or they can eat veal as long as they don't think about that cute baby animal. So that's a form of, of disavowal that we do. In the War on Terror, one of the starkest, most painful of these emperor-has-no-clothes moments was the publication of the Abu Ghraib photos. After, September, after the September terror, terrorist attacks, there was a tremendous sympathy for the United States and the world, and even understanding of the need for retaliation. But the Abu Ghraib photos starkly showed U.S. Milita- military personnel as perpetrators of prisoner abuse, torture, and prisoner and human rights violation. Even if those personnel um, were acting without official orders, the pictures contradicted any perception of the U.S. as purely an innocent victim in the war on terror seeking justice for those killed on 9-11. Other aspects of our disavowal as a society regarding war was our government's policy starting in 1991 with the first Gulf War and going all the way through 2009 to ban pictures of soldiers of flag-draped soldiers' coffins returning from war who died overseas. The rationale was uh, respect for the soldiers' families, and that can be understood on one hand, but the accusation was that the policy sanitized the public's perception of war's true cost, as opposed to saying, maybe asking the families whether or not they wanted pictures instead of just banning it outright. Similarly, our government's policy is not to publish the death toll of either enemy combatants or of civilians who die in what is called collateral damage from our military operations. We've also tried to mask the horror of torture by calling it enhanced interrogation or calling um, our, the way we transport um, prisoners. We call it uh, you know, we just uh, endless uh, detaining or rendition. And despite President Obama's, Obama's promises to the contrary, the detention center at Guantanamo Bay remains open to this day. Now, in enlisting these accusations, if you wanted to use that word, I don't want to be misunderstood. I love this country, and I'm deeply grateful for the freedom I enjoy here, the freedom to stand here and run my mouth about how I think the country should be run uh, without the pressure that people like President Obama face. And I'm deeply grateful for all the people who have sacrificed to earn and protect that freedom, the freedom of the pulpit, the freedom of the pew that you enjoy. But my love of this country and the ideals that it represents and has instilled within me make me want to work to make this country more fully live up to the ideals that it has taught me. Freedom, justice, fairness. As a bumper sticker I saw recently said, I love my country, but I think we should start seeing other people. And I take that bumper sticker literally. We need to start seeing other people. We need to start seeing that the children killed as collateral damage from our drone strikes are just as precious as the children who died in Sandy Hook Elementary. And I don't mean to draw a false equivalency here, but the point I'm working my way toward is just how radical the first principle of Unitarian Universalism is, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Do we mean that or not? 
an important step toward a fuller realization of the inherent worth and dignity of every person might be to allow ourselves to be confronted more directly with the names and the faces and the life stories of those who die on all sides of war, soldiers and civilians, for our present wars and likely for our future wars. Now, such a policy would be the opposite of disavowal and repression. As John Stewart said about the decision not to show pictures of Osama bin Laden's body, there's more gore in an episode of CSI than can possibly be in the bin Laden photos. The extremists already hate us, and the Muslim world sees graphic images of people we kill all the time. Maybe we should always show the pictures. Bin Laden, our wounded service people, maimed innocent civilians. We can only make decisions about war if we see what war actually is. Now, on one level, I don't want to see pictures of bin Laden's body. I don't want to see pictures of our war zones. I don't, I, I'm, relatedly, I'm grateful that pictures were not released of the Newtown massacre. I know that I don't want to see those pictures because, like many of you, I've seen the pictures of torture and abuse that happened at Abu Ghraib. You can't unsee those pictures after viewing them. But perhaps John Stewart and related commentators are right that too much is hidden from us, the public, which allows us to disavow the full consequences of our government's policies. And if we are indeed to be a government of the people, by the people, for the people, as our country has taught us to believe that we are, there's a sense in which we are all complicit in what our tax dollars pay for. As Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said, few are guilty, but all are responsible. To take a few steps backward, do you remember where you were when you learned that Osama bin Laden had been killed? Do you remember how you felt then in, in the days that followed about his death? On May 1st, 2011, a few minutes after 11 p.m., I was walking upstairs to go to bed when my pocket vibrated and I received a text message from one of my friends that said, Obama to address nation, bin Laden dead in U.S. attack. Startled, I turned back down the dark staircase and powered up my laptop in the kitchen. I began scanning various websites from the New York Times to CNN, and I started reading reaction, reactions on Facebook. And as many commentators noted, reactions ranged from jubilation to indignation. And I'll confess that part of me was glad, glad both that bin Laden was dead and that there would no, be no long, drawn-out trial in which he could pontificate his hatred. And within minutes of the president's address, as I began to see some of my progressive Christian friends posting um, Matthew um, 544 on Facebook, which says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, part of me also felt like it was too soon to be quoting that verse, despite my long-standing belief in the transformative power of nonviolent activism. As I continued to process my emotions in the wake of this unexpected late-night news flash, another of my friends posted sentiments similar to what I was feeling. Is there a status somewhere between USA, USA, and how dare we celebrate death and violence? According to my news feed, there is no middle ground. What I finally posted on Facebook before going to bed that night was the following. At my best... I think that Martin Luther King Jr. got it right, that the ultimate weakness of violence 
is that it is a descending spiral. Through violence you may murder the lie, but you cannot may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence you may murder the hater, but you don't murder hate. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And there are aspects both of Bidlan's death and of our ongoing war on terror that do murder liars and murder haters, but they do not usually establish the truth or end the hatred that motivated past and likely future acts of terrorism, which don't legitimize those acts. And therein lies the core of my objections to torture as well as the similar objections of many other people. In addition to torture being a clear violation of the inherent worth and dignity of every person, which is a fully sufficient reason to reject torture as morally repugnant in all cases, a strong argument can be made that the entire debate around does torture work is a distraction. It's a red herring. In addition to the report we heard earlier that torture was completely unnecessary to find Osama bin Laden, the practice of torture undermines the moral authority of the torturer and creates enormous hatred and resentment around the world. Instead of winning the hearts and minds of our enemies, as we keep talking about wanting to do, torture emboldens them, speeding the descending spiral of violence that King warned us about. In that same year, 1967, that Dr. King warned us about the ultimate weakness of violence, he preached a Christmas Eve sermon in which he said the following, I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow we must stand up against even our most bitter opponents and say we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by your unjust system because non-cooperation with evil is just as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. So throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Bomb our homes, threaten our children, and as difficult as it is, and his home was bombed, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour, drag us to a wayside road, and leave us half dead as you beat us, and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country, make it appear that we are not fit culturally or otherwise for integration, and we will still love you. But be assured, we will wear you down with our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will appeal to your heart and your conscience, and we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Now, I have no intention to impugn the courage of SEAL Team 6 or to disparage the military and law enforcement officers in this country and around the world who daily put their lives in harm's way to protect the innocent. But I do think that misinformation and disavowal have shielded civilians in this country, including myself, from seeing the full consequences of war. They've stopped us from seeing some of the ways that the emperor has no clothes. And the ways that our military strategies have contributed to the spiral of violence instead of helping to end violence. The ways our military strategies have sought a single victory, ours, and not a double victory, for all, recognizing the inherent worth and dignity of every 
person. So what would it look like to imagine a way of stopping the spiral of violence? To name only one example of how we might begin to imagine a different way forward. Theologian Ron Sider gave a speech back in 1984 about a vision of peacemaker teams that would be comprised of people equally as committed and highly trained in the nonviolent activism of King and Gandhi as U.S. soldiers are committed and trained in the techniques of modern warfare. Sider points out that calls for alternatives to violence are often hollow words. Because so many have been willing to risk death, not that they wanted to die, but so many soldiers have been willing to risk death in war to win a single victory, but so few have been willing to risk death in nonviolent activism. Sider writes, Unless comfortable North Americans and Europeans are prepared to risk injury and death, in nonviolent opposition to the injustices our societies foster and assist, we, sh- we dare never whisper another word about nonviolence to our sisters and brothers in desperate lands. Unless we're ready to die developing new nonviolent attempts to reduce international conflict, we should confess that we never really meant to find an alternative to the sword. Unless the majority of our people in nuclear nations are ready as congregations to risk social disapproval and government harassment in a clear ringing call to live without nuclear weapons, we should sadly acknowledge that we have betrayed our peacemaking heritage. Making peace is as costly as waging war, financially and with lives. Unless we're prepared to pay the cost of peacemaking, we have no right to claim the label or preach the message. What would happen if we developed a new non-violent peacekeeping force of even 100,000 people ready to move into violent conflicts and stand peacefully between warring parties in Central America, Northern Ireland, Poland, Southern Africa, the Middle East, and Afghanistan? Frequently, we would get killed by the thousands. But everyone assumes that for the sake of peace, it is moral and just for soldiers to get killed by the hundreds of thousands, even millions. Do we not have as much courage and faith as soldiers? For centuries, we have believed that there's a different way, a better way. Our world needs that alternative. It needs it now. But the world will be able to listen to our words only if large numbers of us live out the words we speak. The controversy over Bigelow's film, Zero Dark Thirty, touched our society's ongoing internal struggle with the atrocities that have been committed in our name to secure our collective freedom. I've offered Sider's vision of a large-scale peacemaker teams as one example of imagining a different way forward, a way forward envisioned by King and Gandhi, for which they were willing and their people were willing to face dogs, to face water hoses, to face beatings, to face jail, for greater justice for all people. Be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. Freedom not only for ourselves, but in appealing to your hearts and consciences, we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. So as with the work of Dr. King, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and so many others, Such a commitment to nonviolence could win the hearts and minds of our enemies, giving us a chance of ending the cycle of violence. But such a radical commitment doesn't come easily or quickly, and any such societal shift must start with ourselves. 
To that end, I'd like to invite you to experience one small taste of that this morning. Some strands of Buddhism have a practice called metta, or loving-kindness meditation. As you've heard me say before, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Meta-meditation is a way of inculcating loving-kindness as a habit, a way of ingraining loving-kindness as our default way of being in the world. If you feel comfortable exploring what it feels like to practice a meta-meditation as a way of laying a groundwork for creating a more, more loving-kindness in this world, I invite you to first take a deep breath in and out, and then repeat these words after me. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. Take a deep breath. Breathe in peace. Then repeat after me. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. Take a deep breath in. Breathe in peace. And then release it. Breathing out love into the world.